Last week, I began a four-part sermon series on intentionality. I talked about purpose and, and, and being purposeful. About our purpose as a church, about what I believe to be God's purpose for the church, and I wanted to provide you with a framework for ministry and introduce you to a purpose statement of our own. That we exist to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. By the way, if you weren't here last week, or if you haven't heard last week's sermon, I really do encourage you to pick up a recorded copy. There are some in the back, or you can talk to the uh, AV team, or listen online, because last week's sermon really does set the stage for the next three weeks, including today. And without that background, you, you may not see how it all fits together. The main idea is that the church works and worships as God intends, works and worships as God intends only when His purpose becomes our practice. So we considered why purpose matters and how that purpose is working itself out here at East Parkway. We talked about returning to the Great Commandment and responding to the Great Commission. It's, it's about uh, having, remember, an upward priority, love the Lord your God, an outward priority, go into all the world, and an inward priority, uh, uh, make disciples. It's about loving the Lord, reaching people for the Lord, and building them up in the Lord. You'll be seeing and hearing more about these things uh, in subsequent weeks. Well, today I want to consider the first of these three priorities, the upward priority. I want to encourage uh, our love for God this morning. I want to encourage your love for God this morning. And for that, we turn to these words in Matthew chapter 22, to what, uh, what is called the Great Commandment. I want us to hear these words from Jesus that talk about loving God. It's a great thing. We've already been practicing and demonstrating this this morning in, in, our, in our singing and in our playing of the music, uh, in, in our saying of the words. We are expressing our love for God. So I want us to hear these words from Jesus. These are, these are what he actually calls in verse 38, the great and first commandment, meaning that nothing in your life, nothing in your life, or nothing in our life as a church is more important than loving God. So I'm praying that this morning will be an opportunity, an exercise, where we might enjoy the Lord and exalt the Lord. It's this relationship, this interplay, this back and forth between enjoyment and exaltation. In fact, my guiding thought this morning 
is that when God becomes first in our affections, when God becomes first in our affections, He naturally becomes first in our ambitions. God becomes first in our affections. He naturally becomes first in our ambitions. And so I want to take it in three parts, three loosely organized parts. I want to talk about love's measure. I want to talk about love's motive. And then I want to talk about love's mark. So here in Matthew 22, Jesus is posed a question by one of the Pharisees. Uh, uh, the question concerns the law and which commandment is greatest. So they have overheard how Jesus has uh, fielded some questions of the Sadducees. Uh, Sadducees are trying to kind of trap him in a contradiction, and they're asking about the resurrection, and Jesus kind of flipped the script on them and answered in a way that astounded the crowd. And the Pharisees standing nearby hear this, see this, observe this, and they begin to form a question of their own. And so they have a, uh, they confer, they have a bit of a conference, we're told. They got together, and then they kind of commission uh, one of their own, a lawyer, we're told, presumably one of the best, to ask a question about the law. The law was very important to the Pharisees, so much so that, that they took God's law and from it, they kind of, they kind of extra extrapolated many additional laws. And so they had compiled a list of 613 commandments. And then the task, their task, is they, they tried to prioritize and categorize these commands. They wanted to rank them from, uh, from, from the most important to the least. And so it's quite likely that, uh, that, by, that this question that they're posing to Jesus, which is the greatest, is it's quite likely that they themselves had discussed and debated this question many, many times. And Jesus, refer, referring to, uh, referring them to math, or, or I'm sorry, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, to what's called the Hebrew Shema, which they undoubtedly knew very well, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. And then he says, this is, this is the great and first commandment. He goes on to say, the second is like it. It's the second. It's not the first, but it's like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all the law and prophets, or essentially the entire scripture hangs on these two things. And so Jesus simplified things for them, not by ranking 
613 different commands, but by pointing them to one supreme command. He talks about our heart and our soul and our mind. And in Mark's account, Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he also mentions our strength. Your heart involves your will, the choices you make. Your, your soul is the innermost you. It's the core of your personhood. Your mind refers to your thoughts, obviously, your desires, and your strength is what you do. It's your behavior. It's how you act. But the focus here is not on the individual parts, and I think it's important that we see that. It's not on the individual parts, uh, heart, soul, mind, or strength, but it's on the allness involved. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. These components aren't to be separated from each other and dissected uh, individually. They're overlapping and they're interconnected and they come together to form a demand. Uh, they come together to demand a love that affects every faculty and every capacity of your being. Jesus teaches that we are to love God with everything we are and in everything we do. This is the standard by which love is measured. An all-encompassing love for God. And as a quick aside, I want you to see that, that, that this is emphasizing the interior life. The person you are on the inside. I think sometimes we reverse it to our detriment. We're so focused on the exterior, on the outside, on what is seen. But heart, soul, mind, each refer to the inward you. To the interior self. Only strength is exterior. And even then, in, in Mark's account, even then it's listed last, as if to say, what we do externally flows from who we are internally. I'm just so blessed when I heard that there was uh, this women's springtime tea and uh, when Melinda reminded me that, that Darlene was going to do a ministry highlight this morning, I'm just so blessed to hear that this is happening next month. I'm blessed that our women are, are going to gather to enjoy each other's company while considering the beauty of, of biblical womanhood. And as I'm sitting at my desk uh, yesterday, and I'm, and I'm kind of just reading over the bulletin and looking through the, the song order and the inserts and the announcements, and I see this insert, and I'm just blessed 
by the, by, the, by the verse that's been chosen as kind of the key verse for this event. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Peter in that chapter is, is saying to women, and he says, do not let your adorning be external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. That's what Jesus is saying to all of us, both men and women in the great commandment. He's hitting, he, he's emphasizing the hidden person of the heart and of the soul and of the mind. He's focusing on what's inside. Specifically, how what's within, what's inside us, affects everything about us. You see, the love that God seeks isn't forced upon you. It isn't to be faked. It's the kind of love that emerges from within us and it just flows freely in everything we do. You remember how, how Rachel, I'm sorry, how Jacob loved Rachel? We're told in Genesis 29 that Jacob loved Rachel I mean, I mean, he's just totally smitten, love-struck, Twitter-pated. He loved Rachel. He so loved her that he served her father Laban for seven years to win her hand in marriage. Now, that's impressive in and of itself. But then we read on and it says that these seven years seemed to Jacob but a few days because of the love he had for her. That's a beautiful statement. I mean, how romantic, really. I mean, men, I think we can learn some pointers here. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of this human love that illustrates a love from within that affects our entire being. This love turned Jacob, turned Jacob's world upside down. His love for Rachel was so strong it affected everything for him. Seven years of hard work seemed like just a few days. His love was so all-encompassing that even when Laban deceived him, remember, and gave him Leah instead, Jacob worked another seven years for Rachel. Tim Keller calls this 
an overwhelming positive passion. He says, this is Keller quoting, we are all governed, we are all governed by an overwhelming positive passion. It's just a matter what it is. So every single day for seven years times two, 14 years, Jacob doesn't just show up for work. He does so with a spring in his step. He doesn't just punch the clock. He works with a song in his heart. And the reason is because his love for Rachel far exceeded whatever was necessary to earn her hand. Years seemed like days. That's the kind of love that God seeks. That's the kind of love that God seeks. And so what's your overwhelming positive passion? What is it? What gets you going in the morning? What drives you, motivates you, keeps you moving forward each day? What propels you? What excites you? What stimulates you? What is it? What, imp- what is it that, that, that stirs your passions? And overwhelms. all other passions. You see, to to talk about love is really to talk about passion or desire. But too often our desires are so far out of whack that, that we seek satisfaction in things that aren't ultimately satisfying. But the problem is not that we seek fulfillment. That's not the problem. God created us that way. The problem is that we seek it in things that are not ultimately fulfilling. The problem, our problem is not our desire for more. Listen, that's not our problem. It's not our desire for more. It's in the fallenness of our desires. Our need for more, our desire for more is meant to point us to God, but instead we search for other things and we settle for far less. It's the essence of idolatry. Idolatry is, it simply means that I have put something on a higher pedestal than God. I would never do that. I'd never put anything on a higher pedestal than God. But what is it that stirs your passions, your affections? Maybe it's money, my belongings, my career, my creature comforts, my hobbies. or being popular, or being beautiful, or having perfect children, or, 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 or. None of these things are inherently wrong. 
but they can become idols and they often do. God designed us so that our heart, soul, mind, and even our strength would be in perfect harmony with each other and with God. We were created by Him, for Him, but sin breaks this relationship. Sin twists and perverts our desires. Essentially, sin is allowing some competing desire, whatever it is, some competing desire to have a higher priority than God and God's will for my life. You see, the reality, the reality is that nobody has ever loved God like this. Except for Jesus Christ. Nobody but Christ has ever loved God with everything they are and in everything they do. Nobody Nobody in this room keeps this commandment. By nature, we don't love God as we should on our own. We can't. We can't do this. We can't meet this demand. So why try? Because God is love. And because of God's grace, because of the unmerited grace of God, because love is a gift of grace from God, our inability to love God brings us to the love of God. Our motive, our motive for loving God therefore, is because God first loved us. And now it begins to fall into place. Lord, it says, Lord, Kyrios, the supreme authority, God, Theos, the supreme uh, uh, divinity, the, He is Lord and God. Notice, He is the Lord, your God. You shall love the Lord, your God. And this word your is significant. It's not you all in the general plural sense. It's singular. It's specific. It's as if Jesus is speaking to each one of us individually about a loving relationship between you and your God. It's very personal. He who reigns over all things, who rules the entire universe, relates with you and me personally. He is the Lord. He is your God. That's why we talk about having a personal relationship with God. Sin breaks that relationship. Our idolatrous desires break that relationship. Our turning from God to love lesser things more breaks that relationship. But God restores what sin has broken. Amen? God loves us, though we don't always love Him. God so loves us that He gave us Jesus. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to bring us to God and bring us into relationship with God. And so we have these words, these promises from 1 John chapter 4. This is how God showed His love to us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we could have life through Him. This is what real love is, John says. Not our love for God, but God's love for us. He sent His Son to die in our place, to take away our sins. It's the love of God that motivates love for God. I want you to hear that. It is the love of God that motivates love for God. God's love for us is more than enough to motivate our love for Him when we turn from lesser desires to desire God, when we turn from idolatry, when we turn from our sins to place our trust in Jesus Christ, we are created, we're told, brand new by God in a spiritual sense. We are a new creation, the Bible says. We receive a new nature, a new heart, a new soul, a new, uh, a, a new mind, a renewed mind, the Spirit of God Himself. Let me retract that. Not a, not a new soul, a, a renewed soul, a soul made new. The Spirit of God Himself renews us, takes up residence in our lives, and He begins to teach us how to live as a child of God and how to love God like this. With an all-encompassing love that emerges from within and affects everything we do. That's the goal. Love's measure is everything you, do, you are and do. You're to love God with everything you are and do. Love's motive is the love of God. We love, we have love for God because of the love of God. And then finally, love's mark. And by mark, I mean its target or its objective or its aim and goal. And the goal is simply to love God more. Every single one of us can grow in our love for God. We can grow individually and we can go corporately as a church. Three weeks ago, at our missions weekend, our missions conference, <coughs> during our Sunday service, near the end of our Sunday service, during the final song, I was sitting in the or I was standing in the cry room with Sally and the baby. And I just spontaneously cried out to God. And then I found myself literally crying before God. 
I didn't intend to cry. I wasn't trying to cry. It just happened. Maybe, you know, Malinga Chella was, was preaching from John 11. He had just finished. Maybe it was this picture of Jesus weeping that touched me when Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Maybe it was Malinga's testimony of faith through severe affliction and persecution and injustice in a Tanzanian prison. Maybe it was just the emphasis on missions. I don't know. But whatever it was, the Spirit of God touched a nerve in my spirit, and before I knew what was happening, I found myself welling up as tears began to fall from my eyes. You know, there are layers to our love for God. And often, we, we kind of hang out on those superficial layers. But every now and then, something penetrates and digs deeper, and it stirs emotion in us and something in us that just isn't stirred very often. We can go deeper and higher and wider in our love for the Lord. We can experience more of Him, more of who He is, more of what He's done and doing, more of what He's yet to do. There is more, please hear this, there is more to your relationship with God than you are currently experiencing. There is more to your relationship with God than you are currently experiencing. It's like marriage. You know your spouse, you love your spouse, and yet as time passes, you realize there's more of your spouse to know and love. More of yourself that your spouse needs to know and love. It works both ways. You're learning and you're loving your spouse while they're learning and loving you. Sal and I are going to be married 21 years next month. And we know and we love each other a lot. And yet it seems at times like we're just getting started. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you're 21 years into it and you're just getting started. And just the other day, we're in a conversation. We're in one of those unplanned, unexpected Conversation that, that, that conversations that just reach new depths of relationship, the kind of relationship that requires transparency and vulnerability and acceptance and trust, the kind of relationship that's built on love. And the same is true in our relationship with God. There are layers 
to your relationship with the Lord that you haven't yet experienced. Same with me. It applies to all of us in every way. It matters not whether you're a teacher or an accountant or an engineer or a housewife or a business owner or a laborer or a student or a pastor. It doesn't matter whether you're younger or older or whether you're relatively new in your faith or if you've been walking with God for years or even if you haven't yet to, if you have yet to place your faith in the Lord, you can respond to God and His love for you today. We all can. He's the Lord, your God. And so when I cried in church a few weeks ago, it was because I wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted to love Him more. I wanted to understand more of His love for us, for me. I wanted more of my life to be an expression of love. Love from Him and love for Him. And I want our church, I want you to want more of Him too. I want our love for God to be ambitious. You know, love is one of those words that brings to mind so many things. So we talk about loving food or loving our favorite sports team or loving certain kinds of music or we love a good book or we love to travel or we love our pets or we love people or we love our celebrities, we love our heroes, we love our friends and our family. To love something, I think, is just really to be attached to it, to really appreciate it, to, to enjoy it, to enjoy it a lot. And when we really enjoy something, we share it, right? We, gl- we glory in it. Oh, this is great. And then we glorify it. Let me tell you how this is great. And so again, I just think that, that when God is first in our affections, then He will naturally be first in our ambitions. So thankful for the feedback I received from last week's message. Seems that this uh, resonates with many of you. Really, I praise God for that. Encouraged by it. Encouraged by the feedback and the comments and the helpful uh, input. I just really take it as confirmation that God is indeed working among us. He's moving among us. And I just kind of sense that we're all growing more excited and more ambitious for the Lord. I'm encouraged, for example, by Evie's response. Already, Evie's begun thinking through, thinking about children's ministry through our mission to ministry model. You know, we heard Darlene share a little bit of that this morning, thinking about women's ministry through our mission to ministry model. So Evie's already thinking about uh, the various upward and outward and inward components of children's ministry, and she's setting a plan for the future. Already she's, she handed me this week as I was passing by her office, she, she handed me three typed pages of ideas on how we can love the Lord and how we can reach people for the Lord. 
and how we can build them up in the Lord, all within the context of children's ministry. She's ambitious. I love it. Her affections are stirred. I can tell. She's ambitious for the glory of the Lord. She's thinking about how to glorify the Lord in newer, even bigger ways. Came across this quote by John Stott. having to do with our affection for God and, and how that should motivate our ambitions. He says, uh, ambitions for God, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. He says there is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? I'm just praying that God continues to stir my affections and yours. They've become more and more Godward. But the other great things in life, and there are great things in life. I mean, God is so good to us. There's so many things to enjoy in life. And these other great things, I want to enjoy each one of them in their place. I want to enjoy each one of them to the fullest in their place. but I want to enjoy the Lord most. And I want to be more ambitious for His glory so that others can enjoy Him too. And then as I'm driving home last night, kind of just sharing these things with the Lord, you know, as you do when you're driving and just driving and thinking and talking and thinking and talking and driving. And then this thought crosses my mind, and I, and I just believe it's the Lord, a word for me and a word for us. God's saying, Wayne, I love your ambition. But don't love your ambition more than you love me. And so it was God reminding me to guard my first love. To guard it. And so God's reminding me, as I'm driving, He's reminding me of the church in Ephesus. This was such a great church. 
had so much going for it. I mean, the church was founded by the Apostle Paul. And it was pastored by, by, by Paul's hand-picked mint, uh, uh, what do we say, uh, protege, Timothy. Pastored by Timothy, at least in its earlier years. Had such a great heritage. And the Ephesian believers were told, this is Ephesians 1, you can just read through it, we're, we're told that they were growing deep and wide. They were growing in their love for the Lord, and they were growing in their love for people. Their faith was Christ-centered. Their love was, was uh, Christ-like. Their witness was far-reaching. In fact, when Paul is writing the letter of Ephesians, he's writing from Rome and and it, it, he's 800 miles away, and he's saying to them, I, I hear of your faith and your love from here. 800 miles away, I'm hearing of your faith and, and your love, and I don't cease to give thanks for you. So the church there in Ephesus seemed so healthy and so vibrant, had so much going for it. Its gaze was fixed upon the Lord, and it was loving the Lord, and it was ambitious for the Lord, it seems. But something happened. And it serves as a warning to us. Somewhere in the next 30 to 40 years, from the time of uh, the letter to the Ephesians to the time of the, the book of Revelation, 35-ish years, something happened where the church in Ephesus became preoccupied with lesser things. They weren't unimportant things, but they were lesser things. And so Jesus, in the book of Revelation, he commends them for all these great things they're doing. Things like patient endurance. You're so patient in your endurance, and that's so wonderful. And, and you stand up to false teachers, and that is so wonderful. And, and, uh, and you bear up, you bear up for my name's sake, and that is so wonderful. But, but I have this against you, he says, you have abandoned your first love. In other words, they were doing all sorts of things in the name of God without loving God. And I think God was just telling me to share with you Let's not let that be, to, be us. Let's be ambitious, absolutely. Let's have our affections stirred, absolutely. Let's glory in the Lord and be ambitious for His glory. But let's always guard our first love. Let's, let's love God more than we love ambitions for God. Next week, we're going to talk about the Great Commission. seems that the most obvious way that our love for God works itself out is by loving people. And so even here in the Great Commandment, it's no surprise that after saying, after giving the Great Commandment to love the Lord your God, Jesus says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think that I'm going to let that just serve as a segue 
to the Great Commission. If there's real love for God, inevitably there will be real love for people. Whether inside the church or outside its walls. Amen. Father, thank you for the time this morning. I trust and pray that you've been here ministering to each one of us, speaking to us, revealing to us, perhaps, those areas in our lives where our love is misguided and encouraging us and stirring us, prompting us to see again the beauty of the Lord and the grace of God and the love of God that we might respond with an all-encompassing love for God. Help us to be men and women, young and old, who are cultivating the hidden beauty of, uh, of, of the heart and the soul and the mind, that in all things you might receive the glory through Christ our Lord. Amen.